It was December 3rd, 2011. Our family at the time consisted of myself, Charles, four-month-old bald baby Lily, and our two dogs. Also living with us was Charles's brother Josh, and we had moved to Michigan in the spring, and we were currently all sharing a townhouse just south of um, Battle Creek, the arbors of Battle Creek. It was about one or two o'clock in the morning, the middle of the night, when I awoke to the baby screaming. This is not unusual for a four-month-old child, but something about her screams really just shot me out of bed. I immediately reached for her. She was sleeping next to our bed in a bassinet, picked her up, and I went to nurse her, because that's usually how you calm a four-month-old baby. She would have nothing to do it. She was way too worked up, and she was just hysterical. So I could tell that this could take a couple minutes, a little while, so I got out of bed and I went downstairs um, to our living room, turned on a light, and sat there on the couch trying to calm the baby. Tried to nurse her again, still wouldn't have it. And as we sat there in the light now, I was looking at her, and the thought came to me, something's strange. She's just not acting herself. Yes, she was worked up, that's normal, but she just was not acting like herself. Again, tried to nurse her again. She had not screaming anymore, but when she would look at me, it, there was like no spark of recognition. And it was just very different and strange. So after another couple minutes of trying to calm her, then these thoughts going through my mind that something's wrong, I went back upstairs, woke Charles, said, Charlie, you know, something's wrong with Lily. So she's just acting weird. So the lights are on in the bedroom now. He takes her, he's trying to bounce her, do what daddies do. And again, he, it, was, <clears throat> it, was, it was kind of just kind of a vacancy in her face. She wasn't hysterical anymore, but she just was not there and did not want to nurse. So what emotion do you think is welling up inside of me as I'm taking this all in? Fear. Fear. What is wrong with my baby? It's the middle of the night. She's acting strange. She's not acting herself. I change her diaper, I take off her clothes, I check for a fever. She seems okay, but she's not okay. Something is wrong. So the fear is welling up. First time mom. My, Charles could see that I was just becoming very agitated. I remember I was starting to shake. What's wrong with my baby? She's not acting normal. So what do you do in the middle of the night? So Charles calls 911 because he could see his wife is starting to panic. Very kind operator on the phone. Every question she asked, our answers were no. No, she's not turning blue. No, she's not convulsing. No, she doesn't have a fever. But they decide to send over a team. So now 911 is coming for my baby in the middle of the night. Charles gets up, takes the dog, throws him in his brother's room, which kind of makes me laugh still. That must have been an awakening. And, um, I am now pacing in our bedroom. Lily's just in her diaper. I'm pacing back and forth in the bedroom. My heart is racing. My mind is racing. Mothers tend to go to the worst-case scenarios very quickly. And the team comes. Come up. I take Lily. I lay her down on the bed, and they're reaching down to take her pulse when suddenly the lights seem to turn on in her mind. She smiles at the man. She makes eye contact. She starts wiggling her arms and legs, as she did. She acted perfectly normal. I felt so ridiculous, but I didn't know. 
After a few minutes, she nursed happily and went back to sleep as if nothing had happened. It took me at least two hours to go back to sleep. We don't know what exactly that was. Um, it never happened again, thankfully. She's now a well-adjusted seven-and-a-half-year-old. Um, it didn't happen again. I called the nurse line the next day. They weren't too concerned. Don't know what exactly it was. It seemed as if almost like a night terror or something that she just, her brain, uh, her body woke up before her brain or something. We don't know, but um, she was, ended up being fine. But as I was laying there trying to go back to sleep after that semi-traumatic experience, I realized something about myself. I had learned personally about Mama Bear. What is the, uh, the saying? You don't mess with a mother bear and her cubs, and why is that? Because Mama will rip you to pieces if you mess with her cubs? I had never experienced that just height of emotions before. As I was pacing in the bedroom, waiting for 911 to come, I was on the edge, the very paper edge of absolutely losing my mind and being hysterical. Uh, I, I would have lost it. I would have lost it because I was so fearful that something was happening to my child. Somehow she was going to be taken away from me in some sense, whether her health or whatever, I didn't know. But I was so fearful, I had never experienced that level of just heightened emotions that I was going to lose it. If things had gone south, I'm sure I would have completely lost it and been hysterical. And I had never experienced that before. Normally, Lori is, tends to be a, a pretty chill person, but hysterical Lori was on the very edge. And that was all because of fear. Fear changes people, does it not? Fear changes people. Some people get extremely cold when they're fear. They'll just clam up and not respond. Some people become very hot with fear and become angry. Moments of fear can ruin things, can ruin families. They can ruin lives. Think of some of our favorite Bible stories. Fear is what led Jonah to flee from the Lord. Fear led Peter to violence in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was trying to kill somebody. Fear led Elijah to want to die. He said, Lord, I'm done. Take me. That was all because of fear. We live in a culture very marked by fear. The past year and a half, almost two years now, our society is ruled by fear now. Fear of disease, fear of safety, fear of the future. We can see how much the world has changed. However, when I turn to my Bible, I see a very clear message about fear. What do we hear angels or the Lord himself saying to characters over and over and over and over again in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Exactly. Just a, a few examples. Abraham in Genesis 15, do not be afraid. Moses, Numbers 21, Jacob, Genesis 46, Joshua, Joshua 1.9. Several times the Lord is impressing him, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Elijah, King Jehoshaphat, we think of the nativity story. Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, do not be afraid. Jesus in the Gospels is constantly telling his followers, do not be afraid. Paul in Acts 18 the Lord makes it very clear that we are not to be ruled by fear. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 1.7. This is one of my favorite verses. I'm sure you're familiar with it. 2 Timothy 1.7 in the New Testament. 
This verse is very personal to me. My natural tendency is to be timid and fearful. And especially as a teenager, this verse was very important to me. 2 Timothy 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, that is not from God, but of power and of love and a sound mind. I like the addition there of a sound mind. When we are ruled by fear, we do not have an unsound mind. Peter did not have a sound mind when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When I was on the edge of losing it, I did not have a sound, reasonable mind. But that is what is from God, not fear, power, love, and a sound, reasoning, calm mind. So we can see the spirit of fear is not from God. And the Bible is full of many beautiful passages reminding us not to be afraid. You might think of many of the Psalms of David, beautiful passages like, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the mountains are cast into the sea. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So there's so many verses we could go to. But my mind immediately went to what was our uh, scripture reading. We can turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 41. I immediately thought of Isaiah when I was thinking of passages relating to how the Lord admonishes us not to fear. Isaiah 41:10, which is our scripture reading. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And if you drop down to verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Do you ever feel helpless in life? It's the Lord saying, I got you. I got your hand. I will help you if no one else will. Now turn over to chapter 43 just over a page or two, to Isaiah 43, and we'll read the first three passages. Isaiah 43, 1. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We'll stop there. Look at those beautiful promises. You walk through the fire, it will not scorch you. Our Lord promises to take care of his people. As I was reflecting on these verses, the thought came to me, who were these verses addressed to? Of course, they're addressed to us, the prophetic word of God. They're addressed to us and fully applicable. We can put our names right in there. He who formed you, Lori, fear not. But they were also addressed to people in Isaiah's time. And so it thought, the thought came to me, who were these people and what were they dealing with during the time that Isaiah would have spoken these words? So we're going to look at that for a few minutes. To start off, though, a very brief history lesson that brings us to the time of Isaiah. So Joshua leads, us, leads the people, Moses dies, Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River, they take Jericho, and then they go forth to conquer the land of Canaan. So each tribe uh, goes forth and occupies a certain part of land in Israel. 
After the time of Joshua and those leaders, God brings up judges to try to lead the people to bring them back to the Lord when they go away from the Lord and to deliver them from their enemies. So you have judges like Gideon, like Deborah, like Baruch. And then that leads us to the time of the prophet Samuel. Samuel also judges the people and he's very universally respected all throughout the land of Israel. Now when Samuel gets older, what do the people demand? A king. Give us a king. So then after Samuel, we have King Saul, and then King David, then King Solomon, and they ruled the entire area of Israel. Uh, King Solomon, they ruled the entire area of Israel. And of course, with King Solomon, it's a very extensive um, empire there. Maybe not empire, but land. Now after King Solomon, the kingdom divides. There is rebellion against Solomon's son, and we have two kingdoms after the time of Solomon. We have the north, the top ten tribes, they become the kingdom of Israel. The south is the kingdom of Judah, with two separate kings, so two kingdoms going on there. Israel, the kingdom of Israel, literally has zero faithful kings, and in time they fall to Assyria. The Lord allows Assyria to come in and conquer them. Judah hangs on a while longer until they have rejected the Lord, and then Babylon comes in, conquers Judah, and that leads into the time of Daniel and onward. It is t during the time of the northern kingdom's demise and the up-and-down faithfulness of the Judean kings that Isaiah was ministering. So he was ministering during that time that Israel is falling and Judah is being threatened and they're being faithful and they're not being faithful. That is the time of Israel. And so it was to these people that Isaiah was initially addressing his messages of warning and encouragement that you and I find in the book of Isaiah. So what specifically could have been going on during that time? So during the time of Isaiah, politically, things were extremely turbulent. The kingdom of Israel to the north, which would not have been too far away, was falling to Assyria. So an invading army is coming down from the north, going through the neighboring kingdom. So they, Assyria was coming down, coming along the coast, destroying ports, destroying cities, and then eventually Israel falls in totality around 722 BC. Now this is not modern warfare, this is hand-to-hand -hand warfare, this is burning cities, this is torturing and killing captives, this is sending the wealthy, deporting them, laying a heavy tax burden on those who are left. This was a disaster. And when Israel fell, Judah was the next target, and Isaiah is in Judah. The climax to the threat of Judah comes when King Sennacherib of Assyria marches on Jerusalem during the reign of good King Hezekiah. And we can read that account in Isaiah 36. So if you're still in Isaiah, turn back a couple pages to Isaiah 36. And we're just going to read verses 1 to 2 to get an idea of what was literally going on here. So Isaiah 36, 1 to 2, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, and he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And we'll stop right there. So for the sake of our point, what is happening politically is that Judah is facing with absolute destruction. 
all the fortified cities are falling to Judah. He's literally, to, I'm sorry, Assyria. Assyria is literally taking over Judah and headed for the capital city of Jerusalem with King Hezekiah. So could we say that politically things are a lot of trouble for Judah during the time of Isaiah here? We can imagine the stress and concern of the common farmers out in the field. That would be very stressful and concerning and frightening. We'll return to Hezekiah in a moment, but for the sake of this point, politically, the world of Isaiah was very dangerous and very unstable. Now, what about spiritually? What is the spiritual condition of God's people in Judah during the time of Isaiah? Now, we've already established Israel completely apostatized. No good kings. Literally, every king of Israel is described as evil. Now, Judah, it's up and down. The kingdom of Judah is a roller coaster. An example of what was happening spiritually in the land is seen when we read a record of some of these kings. We're going to turn to 2 Kings 15. So go back quite a few books after Samuel's to 2 Kings 15. 2 Kings 15. And we're going to read a couple verses about several of the Judean kings in succession to get a picture of what was happening or not happening. So 2 Kings 15, so these kings that we're going to read a couple verses each about are the kings that were reigning when Isaiah was ministering. So 2 Kings 15, 1 to 5, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecolia of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house, and Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. And then we'll jump to the very end of the chapter and read about Jotham in verse 32. So Jotham is in verse 32, the same chapter. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, also called Azariah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did all according to he did to all according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. So, pausing there, here's two examples of kings during the time of Isaiah. We have Azariah and Jotham, his son. They're described as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Azariah gets struck by leprosy by the Lord at the end of his life. If you read in 2 Chronicles, he thinks he can go into the temple and become a priest, and the priests kick him out, and the Lord judges him. So the end of his life, he doesn't do so well. But they do, in general, right, as the Bible describes, except they are not dealing with the high places and the idolatry. So the high places would have been on hills surrounding villages. 
it was pagan worship, it was idolatry, they, they were not burning incense to God, they were burning incense to these pagan gods from the surrounding nations. So while the kings are described as doing what was right, they're not dealing with all the issues in the kingdom, and they're not dealing with the idolatry. Now the next king is in chapter 16, 2 Kings 16, 1 to 4, after Jotham, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places on the hills and under every green tree. So now we have a very bad king, and not only is he joining the people in their idolatry, he is sacrificing his son in pagan worship to the pagan gods. So a very bad king here. And then our last king that we'll read briefly about is King Hezekiah. He is Ahaz's son. That is in chapter 18. So just turn a couple pages over. Chapter 18, so we have two decent kings that aren't dealing with the idolatry. We have a very bad king who's sacrificing his own son on a burned offering. And then we have King Hezekiah in chapter 18, 18, 1 to 7. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, he prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So good King Hezekiah actually deals with the idolatry, and he's described as the best king in Judah after David. And so he is faithful, and he brings reform to Judah. But for the sake of this point, just from looking at these four kings, we can see that for the common person, there's a lot going on spiritually. If you're trying to follow the Lord, you're walking in your village, you see people sacrificing on the hills, you might hear that your king has burned his son in pagan worship. A lot spiritually is going on. Unfortunately, after Hezekiah, his son Manasseh is described as the worst king of Judah, and it is during the time of Manasseh that scholars say that Isaiah was killed by him. But, so spiritually, Judah up and down, sometimes faithful, sometimes not. So in light of this, let's go back to our scripture reading in Isaiah 41, thinking these are the people that Isaiah was addressing initially when he made these statements of encouragement from the Lord. In Isaiah 41, verse 10, just rereading our scripture reading one more time, 
Fear not, says God, for I am with you. Do you ever feel alone? That it's only you, it feels like, who's actually trying to follow the Lord and keep on the straight path while those around you don't seem to care or are doing something else? It's easy to feel alone. And I'm sure God's faithful people during this time could have felt very alone, just as we can too. But God says, fear not, I am with you. You are not alone. The second line, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I like that word dismay. Dismay means consternation and distress. It would have been very distressing for Isaiah and for those being faithful to the Lord to turn around and see idolatry everywhere you go, to see your neighbors sacrificing on the hillside. That's very dismaying. And I don't know about you, but I feel dismayed a lot when I'm looking at the news, when I'm hearing about things going on and perhaps my own family or in the world that's going on. That's very dismaying distressing. But God says, do not be distressed. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. Everyone else may be worshiping other things and other people, whatnot. I am your God. I will strengthen you. When you feel like you have no ambition or strength, I will strengthen you. Yes, I will uphold you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There is no shame in saying that we need help sometimes. And who better to go to for help than the Lord. He is with us. What better help than our Heavenly Father? Let's revisit Hezekiah there. In chapter 36, we've read how the king of Assyria is literally conquering Judah. This is probably the most critical moment of certainly King Hezekiah's rule and also the ministry of Isaiah. In Isaiah 36, we read the first two verses. Assyria is literally conquering the land, destroying cities, and headed for Jerusalem. The whole rest of chapter 36 is this long speech that his uh, leader, the Rabshakeh, gives basically mocking Hezekiah, mocking the Lord, and saying, just give up. And so what does Hezekiah do in light of this threat, very real threat to his life and his kingdom. In chapter 37, chapter 37, verse 1, and so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, heard this long speech about how he was about to be destroyed and how the Lord wouldn't take care of him, when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Elikim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So King Hezekiah immediately humbles himself, put on, puts on sackcloth, and sends for Isaiah. Drop down to verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. The Lord's saying, this isn't about you, King Hezekiah, this is about me. Verse 7, surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, the king of Assyria, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And let's see what happens. Go to the very end of the chapter, verse 39. 
Isaiah 37, 39, what happens to this massive army that's come after King Hezekiah in Jerusalem? Verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. Verse 37, so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh, and then he is killed by his sons. So did God take care of King Hezekiah? Yes, in very dramatic fashion. I love how uh, what happens to King Hezekiah is a perfect illustration of Psalm 91, 7 and 8. I'm sure you've heard it. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but they shall not come near you. That's literally what happened to King Hezekiah. Thousands fell outside the gates, but they did not touch him. Now let me ask you, humanly speaking, did King Hezekiah have a reason to fear, humanly speaking? Yes, absolutely. An army of over 185,000, apparently some survived to live to see them, to see the dead. A huge army is literally outside the gates of your city. That is a very valid reason to be fearful. But was that a threat to our God? Not at all. He says, do not fear. Thinking back to the Bible characters I mentioned at the beginning, whom the Lord said not to fear, Abraham. He was facing a foreign country far away from everything he knew. Is that a valid reason to be concerned, to be fearful? Absolutely. Was that a problem for the Lord? No. He was about to make him a father at 100 years old. Moses was dealing with the task of navigating a couple million people in a desert with enemy tribes and lands surrounding him. Would that be a valid reason to feel, to feel fearful? Sure. Was that a problem for the Lord? No. He dried up a sea for all those millions to walk across and not get their feet wet. Jacob was faced from moving from his land in Canaan, the promised land, to the foreign idolatrous land of Egypt after learning that his sons had tried to kill his younger son and now they're telling him a tale that Joseph is still alive. Is that a reason to be concerned about what's going on? Absolutely. Was that a problem for God? No, he was about to create them a massive nation. Joshua was faced with entering the promised land full of walled cities and giants. Is that a valid reason to be concerned? Sure, absolutely. Was it a problem for the Lord? No. Blow some trumpets and the walls will fall down. Our times of greatest fear are the greatest opportunities to see the power of God. If we but turn those fears over to him. What a loss to these people of faith if they had not surrendered to the Lord. Their greatest crises are some of the most marvelous stories in the Bible that we read today. And our God is the same today as he was then. I love this quotation from The Desire of Ages. Jesus sees the end from the beginning. He has his way prepared to bring relief. 
our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. We are very good at thinking that we know the conclusion of things. If we do this, this will happen. If I do this, this will happen. The Lord has a thousand other ways to resolve things that we have no idea about. None of these Bible characters would have considered that the Lord was going to deliver them in the ways that he did. The, the quote continues, those who accept the one principle of making the service and honor of God supreme will find perplexities or fears vanish and a plain path before their feet. That's Desire of Ages 3.30. So our only duty is to put Jesus first. Our God is bigger than our worries. So often we make our fears huge. No, we need to let our God be huge. Like Hezekiah, when we find ourselves overwhelmed, he had a very valid reason to be overwhelmed, what did he do first? Did he go convene his generals? Did he go consult with his family? No, he went to the house of the Lord. That is where he went to first. And the Lord honored his faithfulness. Jesus tells us, we know these verses, therefore do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. He said, the, the godless worry about these things. You don't have to worry about it. You have me. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else. All these things will be added to you. Matthew 6.31 We have a heavenly Father, faithful, loving, heavenly Father and friend who promises to take care of us how little we trust him. It was New York State camp meeting. I am from New York State. There's a large state next to a relatively small city in comparison. I am from New York State. And every year we went to camp meeting on the campus of Union Springs Academy. And I was in the juniors department that year. So I was around 11, 12 years old. So in the summer at camp meeting, and it was a Sunday, and I was at my meeting in the afternoon, and a storm blew up. Now, Union Springs Academy is located near um, Cayuga Lake in the Finger Lakes of New York State, and so it's very uh, normal for storms to blow up. And so a storm blew up that Sunday afternoon as I was in the meeting, and it was intense, pounding rain, hail, wind. We were in the best location on campus. We were in the, a large room in the basement of the church, so we were safe, but it was a very big storm. And after the storm had passed, we started hearing rumors that things had happened during the storm. We were hearing that the, the big tent had collapsed. Now, up until a couple years um, ago, the main meetings at camp meeting, at New York camp meeting, were held in a massive tent, kind of old-fashioned style, a couple thousand people could be seated in that tent, and we were hearing that the tent had collapsed. Now, we weren't allowed to leave our meeting. They were telling parents to go get your kids because of all that had happened. And so we didn't know what was going on. A parent would come, and we'd see out the door a little bit, we'd see lights, and we, we could tell things were going on. When my father finally came and got me, we stepped outside, and indeed, one side of the tent had collapsed. There was the fire department there, ambulance there, and of course there was branches and leaves everywhere from the storm, so it looked very serious, it looked very chaotic. I was around 11 years old, and I remember looking around and thinking, oh, wait, I wonder what's going on, and fear came into my heart. What is happening? And then my father, who is not 
a cuddly man. He's not, you know, one who's going to come give you a bear hug. He, he looked back, and he reached out, and he took my hand. And I'll never forget that, because that's exactly what I needed. I was feeling fearful. My father saw that, and he reached out and took my hand. It was probably the first time he had, like, held my hand like that since I was a little girl. But immediately, what happened? I was calm, because my father was with me. He knew what was going on. He knew what had been happening, and he was going to take me someplace that I was safe. And I'll never forget that. The disciples were in the midst of a storm, were they not? On the Sea of Galilee, their best efforts were making no difference against the storm. They were afraid and they were convinced that they were about to die. When wait, who did they remember? Jesus! Jesus is literally in your boat. They remembered. They remembered that the literal creator of the winds and the waves was with them. And when they remember that, everything changed. Jesus, save us. Peace be still. And the storm was calmed. When we realize that Jesus is with, is with us, everything changes. We are living in fearful times. I'm a mother of young children. I can get fearful at times. What does the future hold? Feel like you can't plan for anything anymore? Everything feels unstable. Everything can change so quickly. Nothing feels certain. However, Jesus makes it very clear we are not to operate out of fear because he promises to take care of us. Whatever your situation is today, I encourage you to remember that Jesus is in your boat. He is in your family, and he will take care of you. He can change a situation far beyond what we can expect and imagine. He has got this. So I don't know what you're facing today. A family situation? A strained friendship? You might be facing the loss of your job or a change of position. You might be wondering how in the world are you going to make ends meet this month? Whatever it is, just like the Bible characters we've mentioned today, God sees you and he says, my child, do not be afraid. Just trust me. I will take care of you. So I want to ask you, are you putting the Lord first in your life? Are you putting the Lord first in your life? Are you nurturing your fears and distractions, or are you nurturing your relationship with the Lord? Are you praying? Are you spending time with him? Jesus is the only way we will be able to live calmly and confidently in the days that we are living in. With him in our boat, in our family, we truly have nothing to fear for the future. Instead, we can actually look forward to the future because we can look forward to the amazing ways that he is going to take care of us. We can actually be excited for what God has in store for us. He can completely change our perspective. How many of you would like to ask the Lord to take away your fears today? How many of you? Amen. I'm right there with you. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, you know us. You know our hearts. You know our concerns and our worries and fears. And just like these Bible characters we looked at, we, we are but human, we are but dust. But Lord, you have given us every confidence that we do not need to live in fear. You can change circumstances in ways that we would never consider just by a word, just by a touch. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much. We thank you, Lord, that you are so patient with us. 
I pray that you'll be with every member here. You know our individual situations. You know our individual concerns, our families, the things we struggle with. You know how we are unfaithful. You know what we struggle, what we personally struggle with. And you love us. And you are there for us. And you are not going anywhere. I pray, Father, we will surrender to you each and every day. Thank you, Father, for loving us, for being with us. Thank you for the Sabbath that we can come and have a revival once a week. We thank you, Father, for protecting us and giving us the freedom still to worship you like this. I pray that you'll go with us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.